Well, it's lovely to be here. <coughs> yeah, well, everybody clear their voice. <coughs> yeah. There we go. Well, it's a, a wonderful, warm, late summer evening. And the moon is just past half now. It's starting to move toward full. And so we're coming up on the harvest moon. And it always makes me think about this this changing process that we're involved in here. There's many ways we can get in touch with our lives. One is to think about the seasons. And the season that we're in the middle of now, autumn, is traditionally the time of returning, of coming back to home. Thomas Wolfe famously wrote the book Uh, look homeward angel and he's quoted as saying you can never go home again but he tried very hard and the the book is about him returning going back to North Carolina to the fields and the forests where he was a young man and a child and he'd experienced Harvard and Cambridge and writing and New York City and And his quest was to go home again, to go to that place of refuge, that place where he knew himself and where he was known. So that's an effort. He left home and had what some people call the elements of a hero's journey. He tried to make some changes in himself. He tried to make some changes in the world. And then it was time to go home again. So tonight I'd like to honor all of us practitioners in finding refuge in this faculty called effort. The effort of finding, of moving, of creating out in the world. And then the next three Dharma talks will take us home. So tonight we're on the outward movement. Effort is an outward expression. It has to do with moving energy, moving ideas out into the world. Next week, Don Johnson is going to give us a talk and it will be about the next of the five faculties. So we started last week with Inez Friedman and she spoke about the faculty of faith, that mental quality that allows us to feel connected and to feel open to what's coming not faith in the traditional sense of, uh, I think the phrase is, belief in the unseen. Not that kind of faith. That's a faith that's more associated with the Christian tradition. It's more uh, believing, even though there's no evidence or uh, scant evidence for the belief. I saw a bumper sticker on a car today as I was driving along and it said, 
Jesus Christo, uh, what's the word for lived in Spanish? Vive. Vive. Ah. Jesus Christo vive. Thank you. Jesus Christ lives. And I thought, yeah, that's, um, that's a phrase that has a lot of power, obviously for the person who put up the bumper sticker, but for many people. And so the, the tradition that we're kind of steeped in in this country is the, uh, what you might call a faith-based tradition where we believe in, in things unseen and undemonstrated. The tradition that we follow here at IMC, the Theravadan Buddhist teachings, teachings inspired by a man that lived 2,500 years ago, are really based on a different way of looking at life. The teachings are based on the idea, give it a try. Listen to what I say if you wish. Take what has value and then apply it. Try it in your life. And if it works, if it leads you toward freedom, toward peace, toward more connection with yourself, then good. That's a good practice. And if it doesn't, no problem. Leave it and move on. The world that the Buddha taught in was a very exciting place. He lived in, uh, he was actually born in what now is southern Nepal and then migrated south and lived largely in the Ganges Valley in northern India. And when he was active, he was living in a world that had been steeped in traditions for thousands of years. The teachings of the Vedas, Brahmanism, uh, approach to seeing life as being subject to the unseen, to what we today would call magic. There was lots of animal sacrifice in order to get your will uh, to convince whichever God you were interested in or involved with that you needed his help and that you deserved his help. So this was the world that the Buddha came into. Brahmanism was very strong and the Vedas had been uh, written or promulgated about a thousand years before. And again, they were uh, prescriptive about life. And the teachings of the Buddha were very revolutionary. He brought the idea that we don't have to be determined by our place of birth, our family of origin, um, our status in the world, uh, our past. His revolutionary thought was that we are creating our lives moment by moment 
and that we have the freedom to create vital, strong lives. And he gave us not only that vision, but some teachings that were um, the way to do this, the way to, to move toward more freedom, more uh, opportunity for all. He inspired a number of people that today we would look at as kind of dropouts. They became the monks, the Buddha Sangha that followed him. They were homeless. They let their um, material possessions go. They didn't stay connected with family particularly. They sought liberation through contemplation and through association with each other and following the teachings of the Buddha. They found that what he taught had impact and effect in their lives. So the teachings that have come down to us are in many lists and the list that we're working our way through in this series of talks is called the faculties, the five faculties. Five faculties begin again with faith and move through effort so that once you have established a sense of belief and uh, you know what you're committed to, you know what your faith is, then you apply effort. Through applying effort, you move forward in the world, you, you create parts of your life. Through mindfulness, that effort becomes clear and becomes effective. So next week, we're going to hear about mindfulness. The following week, uh, Cheryl Hilton will talk to us about the next step, which is concentration. So that after you are active in the world, act, after you are taking action, your mindfulness creates a sense of clarity about how that action can move. And concentration gives you a sense of where the effort needs to be applied so that your efforts all move in sequence, in harmony. And finally, the last talk in the series is going to be Jim Podolsky in three weeks, and he's going to speak on wisdom. And so the end result of the five faculties then, of applying the five faculties in our lives, is wisdom, more perspective on our life and truly intuitive sense, uh, uh, a live experiential sense of how our lives go and what really is, uh, what, what is. So that's our wish is to illuminate these faculties for you. I'm just going to take a minute to say a little bit more about faith and then I'll talk some about effort 
And in a little while, we'll have a chance to do some thinking about that in our own lives. So out of all of the teachings, the most important thing, what all of our practice is directed toward, the reason that we learn and study and apply any sort of effort is to move toward freedom, to move away from clinging, to move away from attachment to those things that don't serve us well and don't serve our world well. So faith gives us the encouragement, the the energy, the vitality to move forward. Effort actually is the process of moving forward. If you look in the dictionary, effort comes from an old French word which has to do with force, to apply force. The actual word is esfort or esforts. It's a derivative of esforcier, to force. Buddhist teachings tell us that we don't necessarily apply force in the sense that we think of force. In other words, it's not always hard. Force and effort, applying effort, can be as Gil has used the illustration, like being on a boat and moving gently down a stream. And our effort may be to simply move a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, but our life is moving, the the, uh, energy of life is moving through us and with clarity, with clear seeing, we know how to just apply that right little bit of touch and make our life move the way it needs to. I like to think about that in the sense of our sitting practice as well. Our posture in sitting is very important. In fact, uh, it can be uh, given too much importance. People become uh, rigid and uncomfortable and Uh, actually have uh, bone problems and joint problems from sitting too long. I want to remind us that central teaching of the Buddha was the middle way. So we don't go all the way uh, as far as we possibly could and we don't stay at stop. So when we're sitting, we want to have an upright, alert posture. It takes some effort to do this. The right amount of effort gives us a sense of spaciousness in our body. And actually, the meditative process for us can be something that happens in our body. Many people think about meditation as being a mind activity. But as we sit and we get very still, we realize that we actually have a sense all over our body. 
our, our whole body thinks. There's research that's been done on the heart and the heart actually has more neurons in it than anywhere else in the body except the brain. And the heart has some functions of the brain. It has a sense of location. It has uh, a sense that we feel as either energy or fear or whatever. So it, it has a, a complexity in terms of sense to us. So effort to have our body aligned, to have our body upright and at peace, at repose, is what allows our meditation to expand beyond just the thinking that happens in the head and expands to a sense of spacious awareness. Stories of famous meditators say that they actually experience outside the limits of their body. I think it's enough for us to get in touch with what we have within the limits of our body. And it's an exciting process to suddenly realize that you can sense your heartbeat. You actually can know when your heart is beating. It's not particularly glamorous to say, but you can actually know what your bowels are doing. People that are on long retreats and eat very simply can sense where their meal is in their alimentary canal. Not particularly glamorous or useful, but it's interesting to know that our bodies have much more available to us than we generally think. And as we settle and get calm and peaceful, we have the result of that effort. The result of that effort is to be embodied in ourselves, to, to be fully present, to be grounded. And as we sit on our cushions, this grounding or presence we can take out into our world. The better we are at just sitting when we do nothing allows us to be more in tune, more in harmony, more at peace and liberated when we actually do something. One of the phrases that I like a lot is, don't just do something, sit there. Which is a flip of the usual one, don't just sit there, do something. I heard that when I was a child many times. But I like the other side of it. Don't just do something, sit there. So my speaking about effort then really is from the understanding of the point of view that we have available to us clarity through sitting, just doing nothing. In fact, as Gil has spoken of many times, meditation is about the only thing that you can think of that you can do without affecting anything or doing anything. Everything else we do is about affecting, about changing, about doing something. But in Vipassana meditation, we sit just to be aware, 
just to have a sense of the present of our bodies, of where we touch the floor or the chair, and just to be anchored and to let the whirlwind of thoughts, of memories, of experience just revolve around us. So we take the effort to sit. It takes effort to actually get yourself sat down and present. Then we take the effort to move. And so in this world, as we look around us here in middle September of 2005, there's a lot to get involved in. There's the whole experience after Katrina. I happen to work with an organization called CARA that provides support for people that have had a tragedy or a loss. And so we're in touch with people that are going to help the Katrina victims or actually they don't like to be called victims, the Katrina evacuees. And so I think about this a lot. How do we respond to a tragedy. What's the meditator's response to tragedy? I happened to run across a newsletter that was talking about a past tragedy that I had, thought it had some interesting information in it. This was regarding the tsunami in 2004, last year's world tragedy in Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka is a key stopping point in the passage of Buddhism from central India out to Southeast Asia. And as Buddhism passed through Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka became sort of a citadel or a, a refuge of the teachings. And for thousands of years in the midst of wars and pestilence and violence and famine, the Theravadan teachings, the way of the elders, remained on palm leaves in Sri Lanka and were cared for by Sri Lankan monks. So I think of Sri Lanka as being a very aware sort of place. So here's what I read in, uh, this is the, uh, International Critical Incident Stress Foundation newsletter and it's talking about a team that went to respond to the tsunami. It says, initially the sanctioning of our project by the Sri Lankan government met with rigid resistance. At the time, government officials were working hard to take control of the mental health crisis and all of the response. They were overrun by disaster cowboys and freelancers who ignored and overwhelmed the existing response system and structure. The system disintegrated. Disrespect of the sovereignty of the government and of the existing system resulted in chaos. 
it didn't ultimately end in chaos. But I mention that because here were well-intentioned efforts by people who wanted to be of service and were frustrated, were unable to find a way to apply their efforts to be effective. So effort has some challenges to it. Our country is very effort-oriented. We like to apply effort. We like to do things, get things done. We're the country that made the Panama Canal happen when no one else could even imagine it. The French tried for, I don't know what, 20 years or something like that, spent millions and millions, lost lots of lives, and uh, ultimately left kind of a ditch. If anybody's been through the Panama Canal, you can see on the Caribbean side, there's kind of a channel that has some uh, uh, stagnant water in it, and that's what's left over from 15 or 20 years of the French attempt. So we pride ourselves in being that nation that went down there, solved the malaria problem, uh, mobilized resources, um, got the job done. So our tendency is to apply effort, to move out, to get active. If there's a tragedy in Sri Lanka, our hearts go out to them. We want to be effective. We want to work there. And yet, um, folks that I know had a great deal of difficulty. It's about a year later, and we're now working with an organization called um, Asia... Ooh, I can't remember. I think it's Asian Response at Stanford. Is anybody connected with that organization at Stanford? It's a whole group of people at Stanford that are using their capabilities to be of assistance. And so rather than applying our effort on scene, what we're doing is we're trying to pull together uh, what would be appropriate responses, think through the challenges, uh, get in touch with those people who are on the ground and located in Sri Lanka to pave the way so that uh, we don't run into the disintegration and chaos that I read about. So effort needs awareness. The third faculty of mindfulness is absolutely critical to applying effort. Let's just think for a moment in our lives about how we respond to tragedy. Our response to tragedy may be something that happened in our family. I'm currently working with um, a son who has had the second surgery on his knee because the first surgery didn't work. And this, is a, this has me mobilized. I've, I've observed my mind uh, being very strategic. What's next? Is there enough money? What resources are needed? 
So the, the tendency to be effortful, to be out, to be active is, al- is very alive in me and I suspect in most of us. So how do we make sure that we're not just moving deck chairs on the Titanic? That our efforts are clear that in our response to tragedy or challenge in our lives, that we really are mindful and that we really do use our resources well. I have a few things from the teachings that I'll share. I think it's wonderful that 2,500 years ago, people kind of worked this out. In the Buddhist psychology, the book called the Dhammapada, which Gil has just recently translated and published, there's a lot about how the mind works, about the structures of the mind, uh, what allows freedom in the midst of that. So I'm going to give us some practical tips. First, Inez last week told us four things that support the development of faith. They also support the development of right effort. Association with good people. Listening to the Dharma. Listening to the teachings. Using appropriate attention, making sure that we don't get diffused and pulled apart by the media, by confusion and drama in our world. And then finally, practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Turns out that right effort is one of the Noble Eightfold Path elements. Buddhism is a fun Uh, kind of a puzzle in a way. Everywhere you you study, there's something that interrelates with something else and uh, parts of one list will interact with parts of another list. The Noble Eightfold Path and the, the fourth of the Four Noble Truths gives us eight things to think about as we apply our effort and as we move out into the world. First of all, understanding. What is our understanding? How do we clearly uh, see? How do we know what's happening? Can we uh, rightly understand? Secondly, intention. What is our intention? Are we alert to our intention? Do we know what is leading us so that we can stay true to it? So that the impact of things in the world won't cause us to fall off track. Then, right speech. Do we speak well? Do we speak clearly? Do we not speak too much? Do we not speak falsely? Teachings about speaking well. Speaking is one of those activities that we tend to take for granted. We just sort of do it intuitively. 
so important to notice what our speech is. Does our words, do our words lead to more liberation, to more clarity? Right action. What actions do we take? Are they supportive or are they hindering us? Right livelihood. The teachings tell us that how we apply ourselves in the world, in the economy, to generate our livelihood has a big impact on us. I like the phrase that I think is a be here now, Ram Das phrase. He said, take a thought and apply a thought. Reap an action. Apply an action. Reap a habit. Apply a habit. Reap a destiny. So the sequence shows us thinking, each thought, each thought is critical. Each thought results in a destiny. If we're mindful and if we're clear, we end up having our actions support us. Livelihood is one of those all-encompassing context that keeps affecting our thoughts, keeps affecting our destiny all the time. The Buddha said very clearly with livelihood that it's so important to be harmless in what we do, to support life in every way that we possibly can. So, number six, right effort. Right effort appears in the list as the sixth of the Eight Noble Truths. And it is understood to be basically you put your seat down. You put your butt on the cushion. You do what it takes. We are given a sense of what the next right action is. And that's really all we have to pay attention to. We, we have an inner knowing that will tell us, even if we're in the midst of Katrina or the tsunami or family problems or relationship problems, inborn, inbred in us is an intuitive sense of what serves us and what liberates us. And paying attention to that and then moving with it, applying that in right effort is really all we have to do. So freeing to think that in Buddhist practice, we focus on the present. It doesn't matter so much about what our childhood experience was. Uh, it's what of that lives in the present that counts. So we spend so much time on the cushion just getting present. So the seventh of the noble truths uh, of the uh, Eightfold Path is right concentration, focusing, being clear, and the eighth is mindfulness, being present to what is.
So that's a quick run through of the eight-fold path. A context, uh, a call it a, a form or a guide for our effort so that our effort results in more freedom, more harmlessness, more of who we really are in the world. The teachings say a few more things about effort. One of the beautiful stories about uh, Buddhist practitioners uh, sticks in my mind so much is a story about Trumpa. Uh, a man came from Tibet, Trumpa Rinpoche, a tulku, an incarnate Tibetan master, and lived in Scotland for a few years and then moved to the United States, started the Naropa Institute in Boulder, and became a fantastic teacher. He wrote many insightful books. Um, today, when you listen to teachers of Buddhism, they quote Trumpa. One of the great stories about Trumpa is that he was going to a monastery that he had not been to before in Tibet. He was going with two other monks. And as they were walking up to the entrance of the monastery, there was a loud barking dog. And this dog was straining at its chain and the chain was attached to the wall and the dog was straining and barking. And the two monks were very afraid. Trumpa said, oh, come on, let's go. We're we're on our way. We'll apply the effort to get there. And as they walked through the gate, the chain came loose from the wall and the dog, huge dog, went barking at the three loudly. And they all turned and watched as the dog was coming. The two frightened monks went running off in the opposite direction, trying to get away from the dog. Trumpa, on the other hand, saw the dog coming and started running right at the dog. And the dog stopped in his tracks, turned around, whimpered, and went back over and sat by the wall. <laughs> and it's an illustration, I think, of one of the pieces of right effort, which is use your effort to go toward what's difficult, to go toward your fear to go in that direction which feels hard, which feels um, resistant. As we do that, we become more clear. We have a power and a sense about our, our effect, our action in the world. So, the teaching of move toward what is difficult. And then the last I'm going to mention, there's a lot in the teaching, but the last I'm going to focus on is the teaching that right effort must be accompanied by peace a sense of peace in ourselves and greater peace in our world. In my work with people who are dealing with grief and death and dying, 
there's a, a lot of intensity, a lot of emotionality. It can be very frightening. It, it can be very unsettling. People can feel as though all the balls have just been tossed in the air and everything that they'd lived believing no longer applies. And so it's a very intense time. And the key to being effective in helping people with this kind of challenge in their life, grief, loss, tragedy, is to create a sense of peace. To be at peace, if I can, in myself, so that they are with someone that they know is not frightened. And that they can be in the presence of this not being frightened and kind of learn from it. Also, there's a sense of safety where there is peace. So in our efforts, in our lives, if we can create a sense of safety, uh, uh, an opportunity for people to be just who they are. It's a, a gift. It's a gift to ourselves and it's a right effort gift to the world. So I'm going to finish speaking about right effort by sharing just a, a few quotes from a book that I heard about at a retreat in August, I was back at Garrison Institute in New York, which is a fantastic new, uh, well, three years old center for retreats. And it used to be a Catholic monastery. It kind of reminds me of, um, uh, what was it, uh, Hogwarts and Harry Potter? If you've seen Harry Potter, you know what Hogwarts look like. That's what Garrison Institute looks like. It's, it's very, uh, it's kind of red brick and gothic and columns and, uh, but anyway, I was at a retreat there with Joseph Goldstein and Joseph wrote this fantastic book called One Dharma, which I highly recommend. If you don't read any other books in um, the next year, have a look at this one. He looks at all of the Buddhist tradition, the Mahayana tradition, the uh, Theravadan tradition, the Tibetan tradition, and draws forth the kernels of commonality, of harmony between all these traditions and puts them together in one dharma. And it's really inspiring to, to think that this tradition that's 2,500 years old has these kernels of truth that we can use in our lives. Anyway, Joseph shared about a new book that was translated by Tanisaro Biku, who's been here speaking not long ago, a few months back. And it's a book that he translated from a, a nun who lived in um, Thailand. And in 1973, she was uh, 72 years old. And on that occasion, her monastery published a number of her teachings. And so what I'm going to share are a couple of, of her teachings that relate to right effort. So 
So maybe close our eyes and let's just settle and get in touch once again with our inner awareness. Take a few deep breaths. And in this space of awareness, we'll let these words come and just hold what applies to you, what seems important to you. This is from Ki Nanayon, a Thailand nun. When you first start meditating, it's like catching a monkey and tying it to a leash. When it's first tied down, it struggles with all its might to get away. In the same way, when the mind is first tied down to its meditation object, it doesn't like it. It'll struggle more than it normally would, which makes us feel weak and discouraged. So, in this first stage, we simply have to use our endurance to resist the mind's tendencies to stray off. We use our effort, our right effort, to stay with the mind objects, with our meditation objects, and over time, mindfulness will gradually grow and our mind will grow tame. The Buddha compared the training of the mind to holding a bird in your hand. The mind is like a tiny bird. And the question is, how to hold the bird so that it doesn't fly away? If you hold it too tightly, it will die in your hand. If you hold it too loosely, the tiny bird will slip out through your fingers. So how are you going to hold it so that it doesn't die? and it doesn't get away. The same holds true for our training of the mind in a way that's not too tense and not too lax, but always just right. If you force the mind too much, it dies just like a bird held too tightly. In other words, it grows deadened, insensitive, and will simply stay frozen in stillness without contemplating to see what our lives hold. On the other hand, if we hold the bird just right and hold the mind just right, freedom awaits and not that far. So we'll sit quietly for just a minute or so, and then I'll ring the bell.
May all beings be free. May mindfulness increase. May efforts support harmless, free living. And may our lives be a gift to ourselves and through ourselves to our world. Well, I hope that wasn't too effortful for you all. And you have a little effort left because you have to drive home. Before we adjourn, uh, let me just say that this is a good time if people need to leave. Uh, it's about eight minutes to nine. If you can stay, it's a tradition on our Thursday night practice to um, have a little bit of time to hear from each other. A chance just to get a little bit more in touch with each other in our practices. Before we do that, I just want to remind you of a couple of things that I should have announced earlier. Uh, Susan Ezekiel, who's sitting just up, uh, smiling and waving. Thank you, Susan. And I are leading a practice group for beginners. It's really for people that are practicing any from uh, one day to six months or something in that time frame. It happens on Tuesday nights at 7.30 to 9. And it's more of an opportunity for interaction with other practitioners. There's some teachings. There's some sitting. We talk about sitting and practice. And we talk about some teachings, but also it's a chance to do more conversation than we would on a normal Thursday night. And Tuesday night, 7.30 to 9 here. And then the other thing that I want to mention is uh, the refuge class that Gil is giving. It's just a fabulous opportunity. He doesn't give it very often. I think the last one was, what, two years ago or three years ago, something like that. It's starting on November on September 21st. And it's on Wednesday evening, 7.30 to 9. It goes until October 12th. And Gil will be talking about taking refuge. Uh, it's a, a very traditional part of Vipassana Theravadan practice to take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. And so it's a chance to hear Gil about that and also to do your own contemplation on what it means to take refuge and hear from other practitioners. And then at the end, there's a beautiful ceremony that really is inspiring and uplifting. So if uh, you can be part of that, I highly, highly recommend it. It starts on September 21st, Wednesday at 7.30. Okay, so thank you for those folks that have stayed. Let me just ask, in the middle of the talk about effort, I was... I ask you to think about how you in your life responded to tragedy in the world. We've responded to Katrina and the tsunami. But in your, in your world, in your life, how, 
how do you find that practice supports you in responding to what's very challenging, to tragedy, to loss? What is it about practice that you find that helps you and supports dealing with this challenging part of life? Anybody have a chance to share? And would you share your name as well? I think it's very good practice because if you don't help yourself, you'll lose your ability to help anybody else. Uh, one of my favorite teachings is uh, what the Buddha said, that if you search through 10 universes, you won't find anybody more worthy of support and appreciation than yourself. Interesting to think of. Thanks for sharing. Vanessa? Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? Yes? I'm Dana. Um, I find where I really need to apply effort is not to get drawn into the emotional drama and to be really mindful of speech so that I don't get drawn into the gossip and he said and she said and accusations Nice. Thank you. I, there's a school program that they have out that's called Take Three Breaths. And uh, it's that very thing that uh, to help violence, prevent uh, teenage violence and so forth. The idea is just take three breaths before acting. So, yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, look forward to hearing more speech from you. Anybody else? Anthony.
Nice. Yeah, Gil often says that it's it's not hard to do this stuff. It's just hard to remember to do it. So your breathing, your focus on breathing, kind of reminds you. Oh yeah, it's great. Okay, well we are exactly at nine o'clock. One more. Yeah. Well, have you uh, have you looked at Gill's book, by the way, uh, the issue at hand? Um, a bit, yeah, he has a, a wonderful chapter on um, developing mindfulness, and in there, he talks about the the impediments to us being mindful, and he says that it, the way to practice is to get very interested in these impediments, because each one is a gateway. And as we get more interested and more aware of it and more understanding of it, for instance, your fears, it actually becomes a gateway where we get energy and and we're freed up. Something that was hobbling us uh, no longer is there. So it's a gateway into a new way of being, I guess. Yeah, a gateway into a new freedom, really. Uh, A chance to see that your fears maybe don't have the power that you thought they did. Uh, they kind of dissolve and disappear. It's kind of like cotton candy, you know. There isn't really much there, but you kind of have to go toward it and lick it a little bit, and then you see it's not so <laughs> substantial. Anyway, that's, uh, that's why I would recommend the practice of going toward what you fear. It's a good thing. And, of course you must do it in balance. I mean, it's not the kind of thing where you slavishly, you know, always do it. But do it in balance. I think it could be uh, liberating. And your name was? My name's Karen. I I suspect you're right, because what I have is not the right answer. (laughs) Good. Well, thanks all very much. It's been a wonderful evening. Uh, Look forward to Don Johnson next week taking us the next step in these faculties. And uh, hope you have a good week and a uh, chance to apply right effort in your life in a way that really supports your vitality and the world's vitality.